You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. One uneventful Wednesday night, I was sitting at the kitchen table with my family. Dessert had long since been consumed, but my two girls still lingered at the table an hour after we first sat down to dinner. There we were, two bright, happy teenagers and I, engrossed in conversation that ranged from national politics to binge drinking on college campuses to who was doing what to whom at school. You know, all the stuff we crave to know but never get real answers to. What's really happening in their lives? Who's mean and who's nice? Who's misunderstood and why? Wow, I thought to myself, I have actually done something right as a parent. This was a new feeling. Usually I'm beating myself up over all the mistakes I make on any given day. But wait, I had succeeded in luring and keeping my family at the dinner table and talking about real issues they might have otherwise kept silent about. What was my secret? I had insisted on the ritual of family dinner and made it a non-negotiable routine since my oldest was first secured in her high chair. Now I could see the results of that commitment on either side of me. Two young people who not only enjoy eating healthy foods, an accomplishment in itself, but also listen, respond thoughtfully, and feel connected to me and me to them. That night, I had to literally kick them out of the kitchen because it was getting so late and homework still needed to be done. I, however, stayed behind at the table and soaked up a rare feeling of satisfaction along with my side order of surprise. Lori David produced the Academy Award-winning documentary An Inconvenient Truth. She's the co-author of The Down-to-Earth Guide to Global Warming and the author of Stop Global Warming. Her new book is The Family Dinner. Thank you for speaking with me, Lori. Thanks for having me today. You know, Lori, when I look at this book, and go through the whole thing, I think this book itself is like a literary version of the family dinner. It has everything. It has chaos. It has love. It has lots of food. It has lots of recipes. It has lots of suggestions. It has lots of conversation. It, is that deliberate? I love that description. That that makes me hungry. <laughs> makes me want to eat. You know what? It just, this whole, this is a very personal project to me. And, mm-hmm. and really, everything this, in this book came from my, my own life. So it's a result of everything that I've been doing for the past decade in, in, my, in my own home. So I'm glad that it reflects that way and it feels that way to you. You know, one of the things that strikes me right off the bat are some of the stats you, you give us. You know, that half the families who eat together, you know, don't eat together more than three to five times per week. It's, it's an interesting way to, to look at this. Well, listen, we, are, um, we have a serious decline in family dinner. And, um, you know, there's a lot of reasons to blame for that. I mean, we, we're now a society that has two working parents, two working overwhelmed parents, I would add. We have, um, you know, we're spending half our money on fast food or takeout. We've got, um, I just took a total blank as to what I was going to say next. But we have, we, we have a lot of pressures, you know, on, on top of us now. And also, you know, the microwave is part of the problem here, too, because we have this, this little machine in our kitchens that promotes one-minute meals that are, you know, that are processed, that are unhealthy, that, are, that encourage you to eat alone. And we have after-school activities that are being scheduled during dinner time. I mean, we have a lot of things pulling apart the, the family. And, and, and not to mention the biggest thing, really that we're dealing with right now, which is the computer and the cell phone and the video games and the television. Okay, our parents didn't have that distraction, and we're dealing with that. And, um, you know, kids are spending seven and a half hours a day on a screen, on some form of screen. So, what, you know, where's all this time coming from, right? It's coming from family time, and it's invading, you know, it's coming into our meals. It's, it's, it's showing up at breakfast, and it's showing up at dinner, and we have to, um, we have to do something about that. And uh, dinner is the perfect time to put some rules down and to say, you know, this is a no-screen time. This is time for us all to connect. This is, this is a gift that each day is giving us, this opportunity to purposely be a family. 
you know, it, it's interesting that you mentioned you really didn't have a, yourself didn't have a, a June Cleaver childhood, did you? I didn't, but I had fantasies of it. And, um, <laughs> no, I, growing up. You lived up, up to those fantasies. Growing, growing up, I had, we had dinner every night and it was home cooked, but the tension at the table was was severe. And I, I always remember like, okay, who's going down tonight? Who's gonna leave the table crying tonight? And for myself as a as a as a kid, all I wanted to do was eat really quickly, refuel and get back out on my bicycle out on the on the street. And that was the goal at dinner time. So I definitely did not want to want to repeat that as a parent. Now, you're a producer, and you're used to putting together shows and bringing together a lot of disparate elements, and that's the way you now approach dinner. Talk about making that decision to turn each dinner into an incon- uh, convenient truth. You know what? That, that is really a perfect description, and that is, that's one of the reasons why I wrote this book, because I really looked at dinner as, with a producer's cap on. And so over the course of a decade, I've come up with all these, with a lot of help from a lot of people— all these amazing ways to serve food, things to talk about the table, and, the, and and things to do to keep everybody there having fun. But, you know, I started this because I was disappointed in family life when my kids were little. It was too hard. It wasn't fun. It was like I left a full-time job, and I was home with two colicky kids, and my husband, uh, Larry David, at the time was... Um, producing Seinfeld. He works seven days a week. And it was like, wait a second. This isn't, you know, where are my happy, cozy family moments? And so I realized that they weren't going to come by themselves, that I was going to have to create them. And so I focused on dinner as the perfect place to do that. And, um, and that's and that's what happened. And then, a, you know, a year ago, I was sitting at the table, just like I read at the beginning of the book. And I realized, okay, this is working. You know, this is before I even knew about all the statistics. And by the way, there's been tons of research on the importance of family dinner. And it's staggering. I mean, every single thing you care about as a parent, from, you know, drugs to alcohol to academic achievement to self-esteem to nutrition, is improved if you have regular meals with your kids. I mean, I didn't know any of that. I knew it when I started doing work for the book. But I did it because I wanted some happy moments myself. And, I, and dinner was the, was, seemed to me the perfect place to make that happen. You know, there are a lot of reasons why dinner matters. You know, you talked about um, just the the family moments, but it's you know, children do better with they they less likely to do drugs. You talk about going out and finding these statistics and bringing them into the book, and it must have been interesting for you because you had already beat the problem back. Mm-hmm. So you you had already prevented those problems in advance when you went out and found out why. It must have felt kind of gratifying and, and weirdly intuitive too. Well, I would say I, I I'm not done yet. So I'm not <laughs> I'm not ta- patting myself on the back of having solved any of these problems. I think parenting is incredibly challenging, and every single day you're rechallenged. And um, so I'm not, you know, the jury's still out on how it all works out. But, you know, what I do have, what I can give myself some credit for is that I know how I spent this hour every day, most days, right, over the last decade. I mean, that's done. It's done. I know where they've been. I know what they've been eating. And I know that we've been talking. Okay. So that's one thing that I feel good about. You know, you, you can't control everything. But you can, you know, give yourselves as a family an opportunity to connect with each other. So that that's what's what happened to me. I mean, the statistics are there's been tons of research on this topic. I'll, I'll tell you one thing, which is that the professors at Emory University have spent a decade studying rituals and why they're so important. And also why what is so powerful about the dinner table? And they figured it out. They know the answer. Here's the answer. The answer is that that the dinner table is the number one place where people pass on their family histories. Okay, this is the spot. And if you have regular dinners, your children are going to know the stories of your family. And it's grandma, you know, telling the stories where you roll your eyes. Oh, God, there goes grandma telling that story again. This is the stuff that builds 
self-esteem and resilience in kids. And so when we stop having family dinner, we're not passing those stories down anymore. They're, they're critical. I mean, it's kind of amazing, all the things that go on at the dinner table that you're not even conscious of what, what it's doing for each other. For example, learning patience. Kids learn patience at the dinner time. They learn to take turns. They're, they learn how to listen, and they learn how to, how to have a conversation. This is, this is where it all happens. They learn how to be civilized. This is how we teach our kids how to be civilized. And our parents knew it. Our grandparents knew it. And I, I worry that we're going to have a generation here soon that's not going to, you know, reap the benefits of all the things that dinner feeds us. And, and I would just add one more thing, which is so important, because I know everyone's overwhelmed and everyone's busy and everyone has crazy lives. And, you know, if you can't do dinner, do a ritual breakfast, do lunch, do, do a tea time, do an after school snack time. And also dinner doesn't have to be, you know, three courses and a homemade apple cobbler in the oven. It can be soup and a salad. It can be scrambled eggs with chopped broccoli in it. It can be peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. You know, it could be healthy takeout. It's just it's really about sitting down. That's the pressure. I mean, we all have to eat anyway. So it's not like I'm saying, you know, come up with, with this new thing. I mean, this is the single most important activity your kids can be doing. Well, you know, you mentioned uh, the, the grandparents. This is actually the basis of civilization. We became human. I was just talking with Kevin Kelly about this. He has a book called Tech, What Technology Wants, and part of it deals with human evolution. And we first became human when we were able to live long enough so that the grandparents could take care of the children and join the parents and the children at the dinner table to pass on knowledge. And that's what the core of this ritual is, really the core of both civilization and of our own humanity. So what happens if we become a society that doesn't do that, that stops doing that? And, and if we and honestly, it's they're connected because mm -hmm. if we stop having dinner, we they're already seeing that 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 kids are growing up without really any knowledge of their family lore, or where they came from, or who their parents were, what the what their grandparents did. So then, what happens? Well, then we then we become a, an uncivil, unsocial society. Okay, we don't want to go there. We're not going to because we're all going to be making dinner. Right, and exactly, one... <laughs> and all the great recipes from this book. <laughs> well, one of the things I, I like about this book is how much of a synthesis it is. It's not just recipes. It's not just uh, advice for bringing up your kids. It unites the two and puts them together and emphasizes how important it is to have them together. Right. So talk about um, your – let's just get – talk about your first Taco Tuesday. Oh, my gosh. Okay, here – this is such a great tip for people, honestly. Mm -hmm. Name your nights. Okay, that's simple as it gets. So my <laughs> first night that I named was Taco Tuesday. And you know what was so funny is that you, you'll see what happens to your kids when they're young. When, when you do something like this, my kids would wake up. And they go, oh, my gosh, it's Taco Tuesday. And they'd be excited, right? Mm -hmm. They'd be excited about dinner. And I always did the Taco Tuesday with my girlfriend, Heidi, and her family. And they had the same reaction. And that's another thing. Start sharing these nights with friends or family, whoever lives nearby you. You know, it doesn't all have to fall on your shoulders. If Heidi did um, Monday dinner, I would do Wednesday dinner. You know, and twice a week we would all have dinner together. And when you have your... When you have friends at the table, when you have family at the table, something happens. First of all, everyone stays longer. Everyone's on their best manners. Everyone's learning things that they might not, you know, necessarily be learning. They're learning from each other. And everybody's eating great food. So um, that was what we did. So we had Taco Tuesday, and then we had Shabbat Friday, and then we always had, if it's Sunday, it must be Chinese food. That was like a mainstay. And then some, you know, and it would we would keep adding these crazy names for crazy nights. And, and that's one of the fun things everyone can do. Very simple. You have 10 simple steps to uh, a good to having these dinners. And I think this is a great, uh, uh, really helpful. And I love the way the book is laid out. And let's talk about about the way the book is laid out. It's kind of crazy. <laughs> really? In, in Isn't a, it beautiful, though? It's beautiful. It, it, it's it's artfully you know what? orchestrated Let me tell chaos. you one thing, okay? Uh -huh. And this makes, this, this is how this book stands out from other cookbooks. Mm -hmm. Other cookbooks 
They hire expensive stylists, food stylists, to make the food. They put, they spray oil on it, and they do all these crazy things to make the food look fantastic. Okay, mm-hmm. and then you you're making the recipes, and you're like, wait, wait a second, it doesn't look like the picture. Okay, everything in this book we made, and as soon as we took the photographs, we sat down and ate it. Okay, so I'm very <laughs> proud of the photographs in this book. Well, that's that boy. They look really good too. <laughs> now, simple steps. Simple steps. Set a you regular time. You want to hear time. some? Yeah. Okay. These. First of all, I'm calling them steps in the book, but they're really rules. But mm-hmm. we don't want to, you know, rules seems too harsh. Call them steps. And and by the way, I have 10 here. You know, if you're just starting out, start with three. You know, pick the ones that work for you. Make up your own. The great thing is about having rules is that very quickly, if you're consistent, it will become second nature. And as soon as you try to break a rule, your kids will say, hey, that's a, you can't do that. Okay, And then you know you're a huge success. And that's <laughs> happened to me plenty of times. But there's simple things. Of course, no technology at the table. Listen, put your foot down here. Okay, I hear people complaining all the time about the texting at the table. Well, there's no texting if there's no phone. Like Everyone has to leave their phones. And by the way, at my house, twice this rule has been broken. And both times when I caught, if I catch you even glancing at a phone, right, or you, you like say it, it vibrates in your pocket and I see that, I get the phone, right? And I decide when I give it back to you. And trust me, your kids do not want you holding their phone. Okay, so <laughs> no, they're going they to learn very quickly to leave the phone somewhere else. So no screens. I mean, no television. This is, this is um, a really important rule. And, and I understand why people break it. But here's the thing that television does. It's completely antisocial. Okay, you're not having any conversations if that TV's on. And it's incredibly fattening. I mean, we have a huge obesity problem in this country, and part of it has to do with how much people are eating in front of a television. When you eat while you're watching TV, it's mindless, and you are doubling the calories. You're eating double the amount that you probably normally would. No TV. And then when something big is happening, like a debate or an election or a World Series game, Invite the TV to dinner that night, and it's going to be a, you know, a great special event in your household. So that's an important rule. I also think one meal, no substitutions is important, which mm. means, and this is a philosophy of the book, cook for your family. Don't cook for your kids, okay? They eat what you eat. And if you, if you start doing this, you're going, to, you're going to be amazed at all the foods your kids are going to end up eating. My kids eat everything. And well, they'll get a much more sophisticated palate, and they'll be thank you in right. the long run. But this is the other thing too, which is that you you're you're not, number one. You're not a short order cook, right? No. And number number two, it ta- it can take a kid ten to twelve times of tasting something before their their palate develops for it. So. The thing is, you don't have to eat everything on your plate. Remember that old adage, eat everything on your plate? Well, that does, didn't work, and that's not what we're talking about. But everyone has to try everything. And another thing that that does, besides developing your palate, it shows respect for the person who made the food. Okay, if I'm going to do this work and I'm going to put the food in the table, like, I want a little love back, you know? I want oohs and ahs and thank yous. And that's what, what I'm excited about the recipes in this book because if people start making this food, they're going to get all that. So they're going to get the, the, the self-esteem themselves, the joy of preparing food that everyone loves. Um, but everyone tastes everything. And if you have a kid and they start tasting the food, they're going to start loving the food. Well, one of the things I think that you just brought up is in uh, this happened. You talk about this in the book, and this is one of the interesting parts of the book, is the importance of, of gratitude. And I think it's important not to just say thank you, but to, to vocalize it, to express it um, in words, in language, extensively. And I, I think when you do that, when you say the words aloud, when you say thank you for making this great chicken a la king or, or, or this this great um, chicken it's the orange chicken. You the show orange me. chicken, the Moroccan, Moroccan chicken. The Moroccan or... chicken yeah, with, mm-hmm. the, with the uh, apricots. Right, yeah. Well, here's the thing, and I learned this from Dr. Wendy Mogul, who's uh, one of the brilliant people I quote in this book. You know, gratitude is a muscle, and it has mm-hmm. to be exercised. And what better place to exercise it where we have something right in front of us to be grateful for? Food. Okay, so, you know, and also a lot of people feel gratitude, but they don't know how to express it. So we have a whole chapter with all kinds of ideas on how to express it and games to play at the table so that kids, that your kids and your family can um, start to th- see things in a different way. And, of course, we always, um, every, every uh, Friday, once a week, we have an appointment with gratitude, which is to just go around the table and say something you're grateful for. That's something everyone can do tonight. Very simple. What are you grateful for? And you know what? You're going to get some surprising answers. I once had a guest at the table say, I'm so grateful for weekends. 
Yes, you're right. That is something we should be grateful for. That's beautiful. So it gets those muscles moving, and the dinner table is the perfect place to uh, express gratitude. And also the old-fashioned um, idea, and I know some, some families still do this, of saying grace. And there's lots of different ways to say grace, and you can do it in a non-religious way. You could do it in a religious way. But it's, it's, it's important to take a moment, take a beat, and express gratitude. And that before you do that, you're going to be setting the table. And you have some really interesting ideas about setting the table. Flowers. You like flowers. Well, here's the thing, okay? <laughs> you want to set the mood, right? Yeah. I mean, when, I, when I'm when i in my kitchen, the first thing I do before I get any measuring cups out or pots and pans is I turn on music. Like mm. I have to hear music because that puts me in a good mood, right? And it sort of sets the tone. So, in fact, there's a, there's a bunch of suggestions from some. I have a few f- girlfriends who are rock and rollers, and we have suggestions from them. I think it's Bette Midler and Carol King and Sheryl Crow. Uh-huh. Um, music they listen to when they're doing stuff in their kitchen. So um, th- there are some great suggestions on music to play in your kitchen. But anyway, that's the first thing I do. And then the second thing I do is I light a candle. Sometimes I pour a little glass of wine if it's the time's right, um, if it's if it's late enough. Um, but just set the mood for yourself and then take that concept and set the mood for your family. And it takes such small, little tiny things to do to show your family that this is important time. This table's sacred. This is important. And it can be as much as sending your kids outside to collect five different shaped leaves. And you put that one leaf on each plate And all of a sudden, the kids come to the table. It's like, wow, what is this? This is special. Something's different. Another great idea in this book. It's like Easter. It's like, but it's but it's every day. It's Uh just a Wednesday night, and that's kind of the idea. Mm -hmm. How about just having you know moving to another room, eat in a room you haven't eaten in, put up, have a picnic on the floor. Like all these simple little things don't take that much to do. Um, but you know you'll you'll reap a lot of rewards from it, and your family will know you love them, and you'll you know you'll get all those oohs and ahs, and you'll feel so good about it that you'll look for new ideas the next day. Now, one of the things you you talk about too, I love the idea of using the heirlooms. Well, that's a great idea. And by the way, why are all of Grandma and Grandpa's heirlooms collecting dust in a cabinet? Like, get those out. And on a night that you're having Chinese takeout, get the china out. And then what happens is you have you have then the opportunity to talk about where they came from and start telling stories about the grandparents. And again, this goes back to what we were talking about earlier. We have to pass on this family history. Mm-hmm. It's critical. It's it's a, it's it builds resilience in your children. So it's very important to start doing that as much as possible. So bring the heirlooms out. I love this idea of sending your kids or appointing each a, a child a different night that they get to put something on the centerpiece of the table. They get to find something that's meaningful to them or important to them, and they put it on the table so it becomes their night, and during dinner they get to talk about why that's important to them. Well, you know, too, when when people talk about the, their family histories, then they become part of that family history. You feel a part of of how grandma and grandpa were in Shanghai 50 years ago. And all the responsibilities Mm -hmm. that come with your family history. That's so important for kids to learn that, you know, people came before you and and you're here for a reason, right? And all the struggles of these people before you helped create you. And so when you're moving forward, you're taking that with you. And there's responsibilities that go with that. These are great lessons we want our kids to learn. And um, I think the, the dinner table provides the perfect place. Well, that's what's so interesting about this book, because you take what can be kind of, in in other hands, somewhat dry or um, sentiments, but in the book, they're just lively. It's fun. You feel like you're sitting down to dinner with a really entertaining and fun family, and you make those concepts fun. And I'd like you to talk just about how much of a hand did you have in the design of the book? Because there's all these boxes. There's, you know, little recipe tabs for paid. Sidebars, suggestions. Well, first of all, um, I I got a lot of help with this book from Kirstein, who's it's it, it's not Kirsten. It's oh. Kirsten. And it took me years to learn how to pronounce that. I'm glad and you she, pronounced it first. <laughs> and she's from Denmark, and she's phenomenal. And, and she's one of those um, 
really special people that like every little thing they touch turns beautiful. And so I've learned so much from her. And she developed all the recipes in this book. And together, we were very involved with the design. I mean, we had this mm-hmm. complete vision of what we wanted it to be. Because we wanted, I want somebody to be able to flip through this book to have it on their kitchen counter, cook from it, get it stained with oil and butter and all kinds of stuff, and then bring the, ta- the the book to the table and read ideas from it that will get great conversations started. So it was important to us that it have a certain look that you'd be able to flip through the book and, and learn something, that this book would be an ongoing experience for people. It's an ongoing experience for me because I'm using it every day now. Now mm-hmm. that I have all our recipes in one place, it's, you know, I'm so excited. I, I, w- I want to sleep with this book. It's like, I can't wait to see it in the morning. I can't wait to cook from it. I can't wait to, you know, when I have new people at my table um, to try to play the games again and start over and remember the things that I did when my kids were little and when my kids were, you know, in their tweens and now teenagers. Yeah. You uh, have a chapter on fast recipes, and you talk about quick dinners from a well-stocked kitchen. And I think this is really an important part of creating dinner is to make it easy for yourself to make dinner. Yes, and there's a lot of ways to do this, and um, it's not you know, hard. A, a well-stocked pantry just means you know having certain things on hand, so last minute you can toss them together. So that's one you know cr- crucial thing. The other thing is leftovers. Like I'm, I'm obsessed with leftovers. Like mm. I think I want to come up with a new word for leftovers because leftovers is such a terrible word. It does. It's not. I mean, leftovers are fantastic. Um, so I, I love making enough food at one dinner that you can then free, you know, double the recipe, freeze half of it, take it out three days later. But also, again, this goes to Keystein's genius, that there's a lot of recipes here which he has um, suggestions on. The next day, you add this spice and you chop this this way and you have a whole new dish. Mm. So, you know, reinventing the dishes. Or if we have this the beautiful, great recipe for chicken schnitzel, how to slice that up and then add that into a salad the next day. Like how to take what the work you're, you are doing to cook fresh food and, you know, use it over the course of a few days in different ways, shapes, and forms. And that's, 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 a, um, that's a skill that everyone can develop. But I think the book has a chapter on it that will give everybody, you know, a good start in that direction. I agree. And uh, I also like the the recipes for soups because I find bean soups are really great. You can make a big recipe and you can freeze you can freeze it and then you have when you need it, you have a beautiful delicious home cooked soup meal right there in your freezer and you just microwave it. I mean, the microwave you t- it is it it's a bad thing in But some it's way. good for reheating. It's great for that okay, kind of stuff. Okay, so beans, okay, now we're talking. Mm-hmm. First of all, Lynn Rosetta Casper I interviewed for the book and she's, you know, a bean freak and she wrote we have a little sidebar in here about mm-hmm. her and beans. Okay, if you can just learn how to make that simple dish, you can have a million varieties of it for for food. And I'm I am a like one pot girl. Like I love a big pot of soup, some bread and the uh, green salad and you know, you're done. Like that that is dinner. That's mm-hmm. all you need for dinner. And you know, protein from beans and lentils, this is a great way to get the protein. You know, we don't have to be meat- eating meat, you know three times a day to get our protein. That's like a total myth. We can be getting it from lots of different sources. And uh, I love soups. I love any kind of meal in a pot. I love that. Because you know why? Because there's going to be leftovers. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's uh, one of the things, too, about these recipes, I think that that's very nice, is that they're written in a way that allow the reader or the cook in, in your family to improvise in them, around them, use them as a base, tweeze them this way, turn them that way, and that way you keep the cooking fresh for yourself as right. well. Now, you made the split pea soup the other day, didn't mm-hmm. you? So, yes. So tell me how that came out, and then I'll tell you my split pea story. <laughs> well, it came out fabulous. I, I, I made it for my wife and myself, and, and you know, I'm a guy who takes, like, if I'm going to eat at 8 o'clock, I start cooking at 4 Right, I, and and I do it in very small increments. I'll get the I'll get all the ingredients out. You know, there's a reason I think that cooking shows are so popular is they show you the ingredients all set in like little bowls. You can do that for yourself, and it makes the cooking process so much more fun. So that's kind of what I did with making the split. Well, piece that's soup. a great tip too when you're cooking with kids, and we talk about that in the book because mm-hmm. we have a whole chapter on things to cook with your kids. Get everything out and ready to go. Okay, mm-hmm. that will save you so much. You know, the stress and aggravation. 
observation of like running back and forth and trying to measure, get it all out, ready to go. And you will have so much more fun. So I made the split pea soup recently. And here's my, here's what I learned from that experience. It's not a good idea to leave the kitchen for a while with your soup on. No. No, you want you want to okay. be in and out of that kitchen or you don't want to you don't want to leave the heat on the soup and say oh I'm going to be back in 5 minutes because you're going to get distracted. So that's what happened to me. So I left and literally the cook, the soup cooked for an extra 45 minutes. It was done and then it cooked for 45 minutes more. So I come back and I'm like, "Oh my god, I left the soup on. I'm I'm such an idiot. I forgot that it was in here." And so guess what? The soup, it wasn't soup anymore. It was like a um like a split pea mash. Mm-hmm. It was fantastic. <laughs> it was so delicious. So here's the idea, which is if you make if you mess up, just rename your dish, you know? It's not split pea soup anymore. It's split pea mash, and it really was good. We ate it all. Well, you know, that's something you talk about too is about uh roasting nuts that it's deadly. Roasting nuts. I can't tell you how many pine nuts I've I've burnt trying to make couscous. And... I'm kind of done with the pine nuts. I'm not a big pine nut fan, but I'll tell you what I do love, which I'm obsessed with, which I'm sure all your listeners are too. Quinoa. Yes. Okay, yeah. come on. This product is genius. First of all, it takes 15 minutes to cook. Mm-hmm. Okay, so it's faster than rice, and it's full of protein. And this is something you, if you have, if you, you know. It's for, light, too. And it's light. Okay, so if you're a busy parent, how about you make a big thing of quinoa Sunday afternoon, and you have that in your refrigerator. And then, you know, there's like 10 things you can make from this thing. You can just chop up some fresh vegetables and put a little ba- homemade balsamic vinegar on it, and it is fantastic. You can take the quinoa and you could put it in your soups. You can take it and you can, um, you know, use it as a rice or a pasta. You, can, I mean, it is, you can put a little tomato sauce and, and make a little cheese on it and you're, you've got a meal. I mean, it is so delicious. And what a great thing to get your kids eating. And, um, you know, my kids love quinoa and um, quinoa and kale. We have tons of quinoa recipes in here. I love kale. Kale, Obsessed too. It's, it's okay, so now we're talking about all our favorite things. <laughs> but you know what the great thing about kale is growing it. I, I kale saw you is grow it. I so didn't know it. easy to grow. I and if know. you you can grow kale, you can grow lettuce. And that's another thing I really I honestly hope that people are gonna start moving back towards, which is growing some of your own food because that's the best way to really, you know, get connected to where food comes from. And of course if you grow it yourself or if you value it more you're going to waste less and um it's a, it's such a rewarding thing to do but i grow kale's very easy to grow and i love a lot of people cook kale but i love it raw and i chop it up um really? thin and i make a kale salad the recipes in this book with an amazing tahini dressing that i learned from my neighbor monina taught me this recipe and her gift to me Every summer we have we live near each other. Is she gives me um, once every two weeks a huge bottle of her homemade tahini sauce, and the recipe is in this cookbook. Oh, I have to try that. It's fantastic. <laughs> Raw kale, the little tahini dressing is fantastic. You know, one of the things you talk about is the the green kitchen, and I think what's interesting to me about this once you start cooking all your own food or more and more of your own food, frozen food becomes completely unpalatable. And also you realize it's really pretty easy to cook all this really good food for yourself. Well, it's less expensive. Mm, Yeah, much less. a thousand times healthier. I mean, everything that you buy out, no matter how good the restaurant, it's higher in fat, salt, and sugar, no matter what. Mm -hmm. And so if you're cooking your food yourself, you actually know what's in it. That's the that's exactly the the deal is when I know what's in everything I mm-hmm. eat because I put it there. Right. Exactly. So it's it's a great thing to start doing and then of course the camaraderie of it. Mm-hmm. I and and by the way, I think this book is also great for people who don't have kids because really your family is whoever you happen to sit down to a meal with. Mm-hmm. So if you're just out of college, your 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 family's going to be your 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 girlfriends or if you're working it might be your coworkers. Whoever you happen to sit down to dinner with, this is this is the experience that that you should be having. So I think the book works for for just about anybody. Well, now you you talk about uh, kids in the kitchen. Mm-hmm. That I tell us your experiences with that. 
Well, kids in the kitchen, you know, that can go either way, right? <laughs> it can be, depending on the age of the kids and the enthusiasm, it could be, a, you know, a little difficult or it could be a lot of fun. But the thing about getting kids in the kitchen is, number one, they, you know, they have to start learning where food comes from, what it is, what it costs, um, what it tastes like, what fresh food tastes like, getting back to what we were talking about before. Um, you know, because we're not, you know, because our food is traveling 150 1,500 miles on average, right? So no one's really experiencing fresh food anymore, you know, unless you're shopping at a farmer's market Um, and all these prepared foods that everybody's eating. So it's, you know, to get your kids cooking in the kitchen is going to teach them a gazillion lessons and it's going to make them more excited about eating. And that's what we want. And, you know, people, a lot of people talk about picky eaters. And I I just, I wonder where the picky eating thing starts from, you know? Is it from them rejecting something and us encouraging that, supplying substitutes for for that? Or is it from, you know, some people have real issues with colors and textures and stuff, and and I'm I'm not questioning that. I'm just saying that, that I think a lot of the picky eating thing, I mean, I saw it with my own kids and my friends' kids. We would have friends come over all the time, and the mother would say, oh, oh, she's not going to eat that. She's not going to eat that. Well, if you say she's not going to eat that, she's not going to eat that. It's already, right? yeah, it's And a then done start deal. asking, do you have any, you know, mozzarella sticks? And do you have a slice of turkey? And, the, and, and that, again, for me, was the wrong tact. It's like everyone tastes everything. And, um, you know, you're going you're gonna to start finding out you like stuff. Well, one of the things, too, about when you put your kids in the kitchen, they will cook after they leave the house. And, and you're going to going to perpetuate not only the same kind of family style dinners you had at home with your children, but also it teaches them thrift and economy mm-hmm. and also the just the idea of following instructions. It's good to know how to follow right. instructions. How about math lessons? How about measurements? How about understanding, you know, learning all that? Those are all great things. But I, you know, I, it's funny. I have two daughters. One loves to cook. She likes to bake, actually. And my other daughter, not so interested. And you know that happens. That happens too. But the the thing that everybody has to do, clean up, mm. help clean up. Everybody has to help clean up, and um, you know that that's one of the simple steps or rules that uh, I think are, is really important. Well, no, I I totally agree with that. It's it's much much nicer if you're going to cook in a kitchen. Mm-hmm. You want to walk into that kitchen and have it be clean. If you walk into a kitchen that's dripping with the last night's dirty utensils, you don't want to cook. Right. And right. so if you take the extra 10 or 15 minutes, which is at most what it takes to cook, you're already setting up tomorrow night's dinner. Mm-hmm. Right. And the other thing, too, about home cooking is that, you know, after dinner, you get to make your kid's lunchbox and you get to, you know, use leftovers for the next day. And uh, so you get that taken care of as well. And then you get the joy of seeing that lunchbox come back empty. How great a feeling is that when you've got, you know, young kids? You know, as as positive as this book is, and it is positive, you also deal with the realities of life, and you talk about dinner after divorce. Yes, I do, because I've experienced it myself, and so I had to, uh, I had to write about it. You know, it's amazing, but the dinner table and all these rituals that I had set up and we'd been practicing for many years, they got us through the pain of those initial months. And the ritual got my ex back to the table with us. And that was, you know, that was a conscious effort on my part to, you know, I mean, you can have a loving divorce if you have two people who, you know, are loving people. And and uh, Larry is a phenomenal person and we still have to co-parent these kids i mean that that's the thing i think i just read a quote from nor efron saying you know divorce is forever and it really is and it's it's not like you get divorced and then you're not dealing with this person anymore you get divorced and you're still having to parent your kids together and as your kids get older and older it gets you know more and more challenging everything you heard you've heard about you know the horrors of teenagers is true everything i mean it gets really hard and they do hate you eventually and you know so if you at least have like the the the, the peace and the of, of the dinner table 
Um, you're going to you're going to it's going to help you get through those those days, too. So so I remember very clearly and this is advice for anybody going through this, you know, half of all marriages end up in divorce. So that's an awful lot of rituals that are, you know, in danger of falling by the wayside. The first thing people start doing is they stop their rituals. Nobody wants to, you know, come to the table and there's dad's seat and he's not there and everyone's in a horrible mood. And I spent the first couple of months begging friends and family to come over for dinner because I was not going to stop the dinner ritual. It's too important to me. And, you know, if I had someone, if I had people coming over all the time, it would lift the mood and it would, you know, it would sort of, everyone would have to pretend that everything was okay for a little while. So I did that for the first few months and then, you know, kept asking Larry to come over for dinner. Come on, come back for dinner. Come on, Larry. It's, it's Sunday. It must be Chinese food. Come on. And uh, eventually he said yes. And that was a fantastic thing. And um, it was a Sunday. And I even got him to pick the Chinese food up, which I thought was clever on my part. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and um, over he came and we sat. We didn't sit at the table. This is another. There we go again with the idea of moving around, sitting in different places. We sat around a couch and chairs. There's actually a photograph of one of these these dinners in the book, in the family dinner book. And um, had a family dinner together. Now, of course, it's been several, many years have gone by, and um, we have dinner together once every week, week and a half, every two weeks. And we have a great time, and we have a lot of laughs. You know, one of the things that I thought was interesting about this book, just in terms of all the writing you brought, you interviewed a lot of people and brought in a lot of other writers and cooks. You keep Keystein. I see even you're afraid to say her name. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just trying to get it right there. Uh, Imran and Keystein. Uh, talk about bringing these in. And I love the way it's almost like a, uh, a family. This is in many ways like a scrapbook, like a family scrapbook, your family scrapbook. Yeah. You know what? That's a great description because um, I'm a scrapbooker. Are you? Yeah. Not I surprisingly. Used, I, I, was, I am a scrapbooker, and I have done that for years. And, uh, yeah, so I think that's a, that's a great description of it. But, you know, my, my hope is that it's going to inspire people. Like, I, I really hope that people are going to kind of dive in and dip in and try some of these dishes and do things a little differently and, you know, not be afraid and not be worried and, ju and just have a good time. I just hope it inspires people. I mean, all the things in this book I've done in my house, and they've worked. You know, they've worked. That's why they're in this book. You know, the recipes work, their family approved, and the, and the games have worked. And so um, I really hope it'll help help people. That's my goal. Well, I, I like that the idea of you have a, a chapter on reading and at the table. And I think that's really important. And not many people, the pleasures of reading and eating are, are highly underrated, I think. Well, for me, the whole goal is what can I do at the table to get everybody listening and talking about something other than how is your day? Because that's that's like that conversation isn't going anywhere, right? Particularly as your kids get older. So, you know, I was always looking for things to do. I'm still, you know, this is like the next book will be all the things I've discovered from this point forward. Mm -hmm. So reading at the table is a great thing. I have a kitchen. I have a bookshelf filled with every kind of book that you can bring to the table and start a conversation. But here, here's another really important thing, which is here's an opportunity to actually learn something, right? This is a teaching opportunity, mm -hmm. too. And, you know, your kids, my kids, I'll just talk about myself, we're, aren't learning everything at school. You know, you can't leave it up to the school to um, educate your kids about everything. And there's a lot of things that they, they aren't learning there. So I always viewed dinner time, too, as a, as a, as a, a learning moment. So Things to read at the table. For example, I read in I'm, I'm a, I read the New York Times every morning, cover to cover. And one of the things I love in the paper are the obituaries. And I know really? this doesn't seem like you know an obvious thing for dinner, but guess what? These obituaries are incredible. First of all, they're amazing write-ups of people who you've never heard of who have done amazing things, right? Who've done inspiring, have had inspiring lives. So I read these obituaries, and when I I find a good one, I cut it out of the paper, and it comes to the table. And there's there's a few examples of that in the book, but also commencement addresses. Mm -hmm. Like I love anything that has sort of, you know, filtered down a, a, a little nugget of inspiration. So 
commencement addresses are, you know, written by prominent people that people spend, if you get asked to do a commencement address, it's a huge honor. So people spend a lot of time in figuring out what they want to say to this next generation that's graduating. And so in the book, we've excerpted just the small paragraph of some of the great commencement addresses that um, that have been delivered. And guess what? Every year there's going to be a whole new crop of those. So that's another great idea for the table. You know, it, it's so uh, interesting to to think about your previous work in terms of an inconvenient truth and stop global warming. This really seems like a continuum from there. And I, I guess this is the seed for from which all your other work has grown because this is a you've been doing this dinner every night for 10 years while you've been doing all these other things right. and this is what brought that other kind of consciousness to into your life I it, think it's interesting that I could have my life could have gone the other way around where I could have focused on the family environment and then you know worked on the planetary environment but for some reason it worked the other way around mm-hmm. and I I don't know why, but it makes complete sense now. Like, mm-hmm. like all the issues that I care about, that I'm passionate about, cross the dinner plate. And that was just an epiphany I had, too, which is that, you know, it just does. You know, what you're eating, how you're eating it, what we're wasting, you know, how we're raising, you know, our food, factory farming, all, composting, all these issues have to have to do with how you're serving dinner and what you're doing in your kitchen and and how how we're living our life and and the the incredible um epidemic of health issues in the country obesity and diabetes um and cancer these are all diet related i mean diet related illnesses is america's number one killer and it's because we're not eating the way we used to eat i mean we're eating 150 times more chicken than our grandparents did that's really an amazing statistic. I mean, how can that possibly be healthy for the planet or for ourselves? So, again, all these issues cross the dinner plate. And it just makes it, it's just, you know, this is just how it turned out for me that I ended up here because I wasn't looking for another project. I wasn't thinking, oh, what am I going to do next? It was just that I had this epiphany at dinner like, oh my gosh. This is working. This is good. This is this is the joy of life. This is what, you know, this is one of the great gifts each day gives us. And, you know, we I want I just want to share this clarity with other people and and the recipes too. Well, this is the original grassroots action. Yeah, you're right. You're Rick, you're clever. Very <laughs> clever. Well, I mean, because this is where where all the at we when we raise our kids and sit down with them at the dinner and talk about mm-hmm. serious issues, they're more likely to take life seriously, and they'll cut and you'll see that feeding back and in their school lives and in their personal lives well, as the, well. This the family is the first community mm-hmm. that they our children become a part of, and it's preparation for all the communities to come, including the playground, the college dorm room, the you know your first job, and your your involvement in your community. You know, as a country, I mean, it all starts at the table. You know, I want to mention one thing, which is I think I think something that that parents are going to love. On every Friday on the Huffington Post, we are doing something called the Huffington Post Family Dinner Download. And what we're going to do is the editors of the site are going to take one great news story from the week, write a very short, snappy synopsis of that story with a question for the table. So every Friday at by 5 o'clock before dinner, you can go on to the Huffington Post and you can um, find the Family Dinner Download for that for that uh, week, and we're hoping that people will will print it out or download it and um, bring the bring the uh, the news story to. It's like a like a current day current events, mm-hmm. which is something that I think we have to get back to too. This is the the tables where we discuss what's happening in the world, where we form our opinions, where we learn how to debate. I mean, I interviewed so many people who talked a lot about how you know every dinner we discussed the Vietnam War. You know, mm-hmm. that was, you know, it was the first dinner war in our history, really. Exactly. And I spoke to rabbis and priests and pastors who all told me the same thing, that their social consciousness was developed at the dinner table. Well, that's a really interesting observation that because I think once you start talking about these things with your kids at the dinner table, that's going to even if they are pretending to ignore it or 
effectively ignoring it, I think it makes a, a difference. It impinges on their consciousness. And, we have to have debating skills. We mm-hmm. have to learn how to say politely, I disagree. You know, I mean, that's something that you're taught. And, you know, we're we're not getting more civil in this country. We're getting less civil. So I think it's, the time is now to start, you know, getting back to those those um, teaching moments. The, the importance of dinner manners uh, is to our civilization itself. And that's, that's what this point, book points out. Are, it's a, they're incredibly important. Well, I love this sidebar with Judge Judy. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you're saying, like, how did I get to Judge Judy? Okay, she's the <laughs> cousin of my sister, uh, okay? okay? And she, I, I love what she did. This is this is a funny little sidebar in the book. But basically, she was, she's got, I think, I, I forget how many grandchildren, like eight grandchildren. She was horrified by the manners of not only her grandkids, but, you know, maybe some of the, the husbands and wives that had married her kids. She she grew up in, with a dad obsessed with manners. and mm, um, Familiar. Yeah, very obsessed with it. And it's become important to her, of course. This stuff gets passed down. And so she decided to invite a manners expert to dinner. And she had all the grandkids and all the her her children, the adult children, come to dinner. Everyone had to get dressed up in a shirt and tie and wear a dress and come to this meal at um, at her house. And the manners expert went through the entire experience of what is expected. And trust me, you know the the adults didn't know it, half of the stuff that you're supposed to do. <laughs> I think even Judge Judy learned something that night. Oh my God, anyway, Judge the, Judy with an, an teaching moment. The, the interviews in the book, it's very funny. It's very, it, it is very entertaining, and this is, I think, one of the the joys of this book. It is a book you can dip into here and there. It's not a, you can't read it cover to cover, but also it's a book you can experience and re-experience different parts when you come back to the recipe. And this is the thing about real, actual hard copy books made out of paper mm-hmm. is that recycled paper. Recycled paper, that's good. That the, soy ink. <laughs> really? Yes. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> that um, you talked about this earlier. The the stains on the pages, right? those actually right. become memories. And you can remember, boy, I remember that when I made that meal and I got Well, I, I mean, you have to use you have to use a highlighter and a pen in your book. You have to write in your book. This is what Post-its were developed for. You have to post it a million pages <laughs> like yours. I love the fact, I mean, for me, can you imagine the feeling that I, all my recipes, all our recipes, all the food we've been eating for over 10 years is in one place, in a book? My kids, no matter what happens, are going to have this book for their kids and their kids' kids that, you know, friends and family, this is going to be passed down now. I mean, it is, it is such a treasure. And and one of the things that we encourage everybody to do, because there's a chapter about grandparents and this here, is write down your family recipes. It's like, so important. Write them down. Like, if I can't tell you, there's a, there's a recipe in here for icebox cookies, which were Aunt Isabel's icebox cookies. And you have the picture of that recipe card. That's the I original lo- recipe card. I love that. And when you talk to any member of that family, Family that grew up with Aunt Isabel, who had this farm, who always had fresh icebox cookies around. I mean, they could, they'll start weeping just at the thought of it, right? So, and when they make those icebox cookies, the memories come back and everyone tells the stories, this is what we need. And so get your family recipes together, write them down and um, put a little pocket in the back of the book and, and keep them attached to this book and then get to pass the whole thing down to the next generation. That's right. We need to make sure everybody knows how to make Grandma Kaufman's Pfeffernissen. Okay. Well, there you go. There you go. I mean, Aunt Helen's um, um, apple cake is in here. People's stories and, and, and the mm-hmm. memories they bring back for them are, are just, you know, just incredible. Incredible. Oh, I think a lot of people will be remembering this book, and this book will be the center of a lot of memories. I hope so. I've been speaking with Lori David. Her new book is The Family Dinner. Thank you for joining me, Lori. Rick, thank you so much. It was fun. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.